Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, it's time to open up the Word of Life and be fed from it today. Acts chapter number 9. A familiar passage if you know your Bible well. If not, it's going to be an exciting passage for you to learn from today because it, it covers the conversion of the most famous and effective missionary uh, that's ever lived. His name was the Apostle Paul. We're going to study him today under the name of Saul. Uh, we, aren't, we haven't gotten to his name change yet. Uh, we're going to get to his, his heart change today. And uh, we're going to refer to him all day as Saul. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. But uh, his name in our text is Saul. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read our entire text at large. That's actually going to save us some time. You're going to feel like it's going to take a while. But it's actually going to save us some time in the sermon. Uh, so that we don't have to go back and reread every verse as I'm explaining them and working my way through the sermon today. But I want you to follow along closely because we're going to read 31 verses. Uh, Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 31. The Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Will you look up here just for a second? Because I'm not going to take for granted everybody knows the backstory to this. So if you've never heard of Saul, then you need to know what the first two verses Luke uses to set up his character, who he is right now. The guy is a persecutor of Christians. I mean, a legit persecutor of Christians. What you're going to read happens in his life is nothing but an act of amazing grace that saved a wretch like Saul. But you need to know what he was before he was converted because he was a maniac. He was a crazy man. Verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For, behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, what a great way to greet this man. He's never been called a brother by other Christians. But Ananias said, you're one of us, brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales 
And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway or immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is a son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which, are, which called on, on this name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? But Saul increased them more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying awake was known of Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way. And that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. The title of my message contains all three of my main points for the sermon. Converted, called, and cared for. The text we just read covers the first three years of Saul's life as a believer. And it's an incredible, credible journey full of practical applications, I think, for the believer and the church today. I want to jump right into our outline and begin studying Saul's conversion. Let's start by looking at how Saul was converted by God's grace. There are two things that, that work together in our text in Saul's conversion. There's divine intervention and there's human involvement. We read verses 1 and 2 that tell us that Saul was on his way to Damascus in an effort to hunt down any converted Jews who were worshiping in the synagogues. His goal is to find them and then imprison them in Jerusalem. As he was on his journey, God divinely intervened by shining a a bright light on him from heaven. This caused Saul to fall immediately to the ground where he literally heard the voice of Jesus. Even the men around him heard the voice. They didn't see him, but they heard a voice speak directly to Saul. This was clearly a divine intervention. It was clearly supernatural. And this is where conversion always begins. It always begins with God making contact with a sinner. It begins when God confronts the sinner. Today, he might not shine a bright light from heaven on a sinner to get their attention, though God could certainly do that if he wanted. But there are some more normative ways that he confronts sinners today. Sometimes God confronts sinners through a direct message from his word, just like I'm preaching today. Sometimes it can come by way of a gospel witness who shares God's word with a friend. It can come by way of a Christian song that contains God's word. I found that sometimes God confronts sinners through tragedy today. Sometimes he places a sinner in a situation where the only direction that sinner can look is up. He humbles the sinner through placing him in a circumstance so difficult that the sinner is stripped of his self-reliance and compelled to look to someone greater than himself for help. I have found on any given Sunday, people come to our church for that very reason. God has put them on their back circumstantially and they know they need something spiritual. 
God confronts sinners in a variety of ways. But the point is this, that God is the one that initiates salvation. He divinely brings himself into contact with those who are lost. But it doesn't stop there. Because God divinely does one more thing to draw a sinner to himself. We use the word conviction to describe that. See, after Saul was knocked to the ground by the light from heaven, the voice of Jesus started to speak to him. And the content of his message referred back to Saul's past sins of persecuting the church. Which I find interesting that Jesus said was in essence persecuting him. You know what that means? It means Jesus really loves his church. It means Jesus feels like he's one with his church. It means like Jesus, Jesus really thinks a lot of his bride. That's what he calls the church, his bride. So when you mess with his people, Jesus is saying, you're messing with me. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, Saul, it, it's hard to kick against the pricks. What is he talking about? Well, it was a Greek proverb that I think the agricultural society of that day would have understood well. Another word for the word prick would, would, would be a goad. It was, was an ox goad, a tool used by, used by uh, farmers in that day. They, they would take this stick with a, a sharp uh, metal edge uh, on the tip and they would poke the oxen uh, as the oxen was plowing to keep them in the right direction, to keep them motivated. Oftentimes that, that animal would rebel by kicking back against that prick that just poked them, but that resulted in the prick digging deeper into his flesh. In essence, the more an ox rebelled, the more it suffered. And Jesus is using this metaphor to illustrate the conviction of God that had been poking at Saul for quite some time. And he's telling Saul, Saul, the more you resist the poking and the convicting of God in your life, the harder your life's going to become. I want to say the same thing to anyone in here today who's experiencing the poking of God in your life. The conviction of God in your life. Can I tell you, friend, don't resist it. Don't kick back against it. Don't suppress it. Don't ignore it. Humbly submit to it. If you're feeling God tugging on your heart today, convicting you of your sin today, that is his divine way of drawing you to himself. I know conviction doesn't feel good. Just like being poked with an ox go doesn't feel good. But conviction is actually a demonstration of God's good grace in your life. It's a positive thing. He's trying to get your attention and help you to see your need for him in your life. He's trying to poke you in the right direction. Thankfully, uh, God got Saul's attention. That's why Saul acknowledged Jesus as Lord when he asked, Lord, what will thou have me to do? I believe this is a genuine sign of repentance, which is turning from your sin and turning to Christ as your Savior and Lord, the ruler of your life. Upon Saul's repentance and faith, I believe that he became a Christian. God then directed Saul to go into Damascus. I love how how author John Stott describes this. He said, he who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. There could be no misunderstanding what had happened. The risen Lord had appeared to Saul. It was not a subjective vision or dream. It was an an objective appearance of the resurrected and now glorified Jesus Christ. The light he saw was the glory of Christ, and the voice he heard was the voice of Christ. Christ had interrupted his headlong career of persecution and had turned him around to face in the opposite direction. 
That's what salvation is. It's when God confronts you and then God pokes you and convicts you in an effort to get you to turn to him. That's what happened in Saul's life and his life was changed forever. May I ask you, has your life been changed by Jesus Christ today? Have you been confronted and convicted by God? Do you remember when that happened in your life? When you figured out what Saul figured out, I can no longer kick against the conviction of God. He's confronted me. He's lovingly convicted me. And now I must by faith believe and repent or turn from my sin. Has that happened for you? Interestingly, that's not where Saul's conversion story ends. He's still blind. He doesn't belong to a church yet. He hasn't been baptized or publicly identified with Jesus. That's where another character of our story comes in, an obscure character in the New Testament, a man by the name of Ananias. There's two Ananiases in Scripture. This is the second one, and he's only mentioned this one time in all of Scripture, never shows up again. But what's so awesome about this story is that while God was speaking to Saul on the road to Damascus, he was also speaking to Ananias, who was already in Damascus. In fact, God's interaction with Ananias takes up more space in the narrative than his conversation with Saul. That tells me something very important. While God is the one who divinely initiates the conversion of sinners, he also uses his people in the process to play an important role in the conversion and spiritual growth of sinners. Listen, God does what only he can do to make contact with a sinner and convict a sinner. But at the same time, he works in the heart of a believer to be his gospel representative in the life of that sinner. Saul's conversion is a good example of when divine intervention meets human involvement. If you think about it, every story about a Saul being converted involves an Ananias who is used by God to show him the way. You've probably heard of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist who had preached to crowds of 10 and 20,000 people at a time. But we shouldn't forget that there may have never been a D.L. Moody in the pulpit if it wasn't for the Ananias in his life, a Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball that showed him the way. You've heard of Billy Graham, another great evangelist who's, who's reached hundreds of thousands of people in his lifetime. But don't forget about Mordecai Ham, who was a faithful preacher that was preaching the, the gospel on the night that young Billy Graham got saved. I just had the opportunity to sit down with the daughter of Joel and Paula Figgs last week. Her, her name's Callie. She has an amazing salvation testimony. David got to hear it as well over the phone last week. Callie attends the Oklahoma State University. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's what I said. I said, oh, man. She needed to be saved. That was good timing, Henry. Boomer sooner, baby. <clears throat> Back. Let's, let's get focused again. That was great, though. We're praying for Callie, by the way. Uh, she, she went to college, was quite active on the social scene. Early on, um, at her time at Oklahoma State, a young lady by the name of Megan walked up and introduced herself to Callie. Megan was a Christian. Uh, She invited Callie to spend an afternoon with her, and that afternoon she boldly declared the gospel with Callie. To Callie's testimony, she wasn't interested at all. But, But Megan was a faithful Ananias. While God was speaking to Megan, 
to share her faith with Callie, God was also poking Callie along the way. Divine intervention was meeting up with human involvement. It wasn't long until Callie found herself in a situation where she could no longer be satisfied with the joy and the artificial peace that the world was offering her. And she turned to Christ. This is just, what, David, a year or two ago, something like that? This semester, Callie's planning on graduating from Oklahoma State University with an engineering degree. And she's going to use that degree to get her into the country of India where she's going to be a full-time missionary. I'm going to bring her in front of our church at some point because I want to get behind her. She's got an amazing story and so much intentionality and a plan with, with what God's going to use her to do. I don't know how God's going to use Callie. I just know he's going to use her. But here's the point. Callie needed a Megan. D.L. Moody needed an Edward Kimball. Billy Graham needed a Mordecai Ham. Saul needed an Ananias. And somebody in your life right now needs you. Somebody who God is in contact with. Someone who God is convicting of their sin. Someone who is spiritually blind and needs direction. They probably don't know it, but God is leading them to you right now. You might be their Ananias, so be ready for that. Be listening closely to the Lord. Be sensitive to when he, when he tells you to share the gospel because your obedience and your initiative and your faith and your boldness may lead to the changing of a life. Megan never knew the day she took Callie out that afternoon. She, she probably never knew that Callie would eventually be a missionary. And she still doesn't know the fruit that will come as a result of Callie's witness in the country of India. But it all started with one concerned girl who the Holy Spirit poked and said, share the gospel with her. And she did. And the rest is history. That's Saul's conversion. Notice, secondly, today, Saul wasn't just converted by God's grace. He was called to preach God's word. We read it in verse 15 and 16. God had an amazing plan for uh, Saul's life. And Jesus told Ananias what it was. He was going to take Saul and and use him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to to non-Jews. He was going to use him to preach the gospel to powerful kings. He was going to position him politically in front of some powerful people who could make a difference when they got saved. He was going to send him to preach to the children of Israel. And that's exactly what happened. After Ananias confirmed Saul's salvation, Saul received his sight. He was baptized because saved people get baptized. And then he was filled with the Holy Ghost. And I love what verse 20 says. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. Paul didn't wait to preach. You know why? He couldn't wait. He immediately started to tell people about Christ. Man, that sounds a lot like one of our our newer converts here at Fellowship who just so happens to be named Saul as well. I don't know if Saul's here today, might be working, but his name's Saul Cavarubius. And Pastor Tanner had the opportunity to take Saul and his wife Claudia through Fellowship 101, which is a six-week study in the Gospel of Mark, and introduced them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they both have called upon Christ to be their Savior and repented of their sin and are getting baptized at the end of this month. It's amazing. Tanner's still working with Saul in Fellowship 201. And so Tanner sent the pastoral staff a text message that Saul uh, sent him last week. And it said this, After I become a member, I would like to learn how to help people find and follow Jesus like you do even if it takes time to learn. I have found out that once I've got to know Jesus, I want everyone to know him. Even if it's just one soul, I get to introduce to God and into salvation. That's awesome. Let me ask you, can can the same thing be said 
about you as was said about Saul. I'm talking about Saul in Acts and Saul in fellowship. That upon your conversion, you immediately wanted to tell people about Christ or you, you at least wanted to learn how to do so. If not, what are you waiting on? Why is there such a long delay so often between our conversion and our sharing of Christ with others? Why do believers talk more to lost people about secular topics than they talk about spiritual topics? Why do we talk about our cars and our trucks and our kids and our, and our golf clubs and, and, and our fishing and our hunting and all those things are okay, they're okay, they're okay. They can be bridges to gospel conversations. But why do we spend so much time finding common ground on the secular and we find no time, no boldness, no wisdom, no urgency to talk to somebody about their eternal soul? Well, I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. Maybe not like I am on Sunday mornings, but you're a preacher on Monday. Mama, you're a preacher to your kids. Not just telling them to brush their teeth either. You preach Jesus to your kids, mom. Sir, you're you're a preacher when you go to work. You are. You may not have a fancy outline like I have today. You may not be comfortable with public speaking today. But God has commissioned you to take the gospel to your circle of influence. Why are Christians so silent about their faith? Why can't we have the the urgency and the enthusiasm of Saul? I'm just going to go talk about Jesus. Doesn't mean we make a scene or we're annoying about it. But at the end of the day, we speak it. Our text gives us a couple indications of uh, just some realities we'll experience as we, we preach God's word. Three times in our text, it said that Saul experienced opposition. I don't mean like people unfriended him on Facebook. That's not opposition. I'm talking about they wanted to kill him and slay him. And I want to tell you this. If you're not ready to face opposition, you're not ready to share the gospel. Because in some way, shape or form... Somebody who's bold with their faith, not annoying with your faith, inviting opposition on yourself, but bold and wise with your faith, you will face some shade of opposition. Thankfully, we live in a country where we probably won't experience what Saul experienced, at least any time in the near future. But you will face some type of opposition. Are you willing to for sake of the gospel? The comforting reality is this. Saul was filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. It's the same Holy Spirit. We don't have volume two, a less powerful version. No, we have like the volume one, the third person of the Godhead. That means when you preach the gospel to your coworker, your friends, your family, your kids, you are never preaching by yourself. You're never preaching a sermon by yourself. You're never passing out a track by yourself. You're never inviting someone to Easter Sunday by yourself. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, empowering you and giving you what you need in that very moment. But he won't do it unless you take a step. Holy Spirit doesn't force you to share your faith, but when you do, he's all behind you. It's amazing. Saul was converted by God's grace. He was called to preach God's word. I'll give you my last point. Saul was cared for by God's people. Everywhere that Saul went, he was met with shock and disbelief and skepticism. I'm talking about by the church. They could not believe that this persecutor was now a so-called Christian. And you probably can't blame them much for it. They're probably thinking in their minds that, that he is, he's like an undercover guy now. 
So, so he's gotten saved and, and, and it's just a ploy to get into their good graces and into their homes and into their congregations. So then he could uh, imprison them in Jerusalem. Maybe he was just being crafty with it. They were certainly scared because he had a lot of power. In fact, I want to show you that to you. Look at your Bible real quick. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then Ananias answered, this is after God told him, Paul's coming your way. Saul's coming your way. He said, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done by the saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. He was scared to death. Look at verse 21. But all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed them? which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound under the chief priest. They were skeptical. Look at verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. The most spiritual guys wouldn't even let Saul join them because they were scared of him. Now, can you imagine how silly those disciples must have felt several years later when they look back at this moment. I mean, they really got this one wrong. Had they known what Paul eventually would turn out to be, I think they would have gladly integrated him into their fellowship. But because they were more concerned about his past than his future, they didn't want anything to do with him. And if, and if you... Don't you think that, that if the apostles dropped the ball on integrating a new person to their church, that it's quite possible for us to make the same mistake. If the disciples, if a, if, if a man like Ananias was fearful and skeptical and hesitant to receive a sinner, don't you think that you would be susceptible to doing the same thing? Maybe for the same reason the disciples were. You, you are Skeptical or hesitant to accept certain people because of their past. Maybe we live in a small town, so maybe you know what they've done. Maybe you ran with them in high school or college. Maybe they've said something in the past or the not too distant past that, that makes you squirm at the thought of going to church with them. I mean, you're happy that they're a Christian now, but can they attend a different congregation, please? Maybe our hesitancy about receiving a new person would involve our own comfort. We can get so comfortable with our small group of people, we like to call them our tribe today, that we fellowship with, that we communicate with, that we do life with, that we don't like the work and the discomfort involved in integrating a new person into our group. And maybe it's not just that we're uncomfortable with that, but worse, maybe sometimes we don't even notice the need to integrate a new convert or a new member into our fellowship. A new person attends our service. It doesn't even dawn on us to introduce ourselves. A new family joins our church, but because they're not in our particular life stage, we don't find it necessary to get to know them. There could be all kinds of reasons for why we, we would resemble the disciples' attitude towards Saul in our own church. But can you hear me today? There's really no excuse for it. Romans 15, 7 says, Wherefore, receive ye one another. As Christ also received us to the glory of God. Here's the truth. Christ has received every single one of us just as we were and are. And that's why he expects the church and every believer to receive each other and to care for one another without partiality. Thankfully, there's one man, one man 
who was willing to receive Saul. His name was Barnabas. Verse 27, I love how it explains how Barnabas received him. Because watch here, watch here, watch here. If I were to say this, if I were to say, hey, so-and-so got saved today in church. I think everybody in their right mind would be like, amen, amen. I've read so-and-so wants to come into the membership of the fellowship family. All in favor, say amen. Amen, amen. And we're like, we're like willing to be friendly and kind of passively receive them. But we never, ever go talk to that person ever. There's no concrete action. I mean, like, yes, from, from across the auditorium, we're glad they're here and, and it's great and it's, it's dandy and we're thankful that they're here. And I'm not saying that you're opposing them like, like the church opposed Saul coming into their, their flock, but we're so passive about it. We're not intentional about it. When we come to church, we're not missional. When we come to church, we're not outward focused, we're, we're inward focused. When we come to church in, in the Western world today, we want just an hour and a half of comfort. And no longer than an hour and a half, by the way. We want it as comfortable as possible. We want the songs we're comfortable with. We want the sermons we're comfortable with. We want to sit by the people we're comfortable with. Some believers even want the, the temperature in the room to be what they're comfortable with. But we don't come to church to be comfortable. We don't come to church to be inward focused. We don't come to church to run to our clique of people. Though fellowship is needed and you should do that. That's why we come on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Because you have time in those three services to get to know a bunch of people. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when you come to church, let me ask you, are you a Barnabas? Because it says that Barnabas did three things. He took him in. And then he brought him in. And then he declared that he was a legit believer. He vouched for him. He says, I I know that he's seen the Lord. I know he's been with the Lord. I know he's been changed. And here's how I know. He went and preached in Damascus almost immediately, even when his life was threatened. This guy's the real deal. There was not... Who in the church of Jerusalem is thankful that Saul got saved? And Barnabas like, amen. Time's lunch. No, he took a long, hard look at Saul. And if it was today, he would have walked across the auditorium right after the last amen. When all the other disciples would flock over there and talk about Saul, Barnabas would run over to Saul and he would bring him in. And he would do something tangible to let him know you are one of us. Verse 28 says that that Paul, or Saul rather, went with them. He was one of them now. He was one of them. Not just on a membership role. Like he felt like part of the Jerusalem family. That's how our church ought to be. We ought to have a Barnabas spirit in Fellowship Baptist Church. And I'm a realist. I know the size of our church. And I know it's very difficult. And I know that we're not going to get it right every single Sunday. And I know some people will come and they'll leave without having their hand shake one time by me or a pastoral staff member or a member of our church. And you've got to know that's never intentional. We'll never get it fully right. But we ought to be working to get it right every single service. Can you imagine if Barnabas wouldn't have brought him in? 
Barnabas didn't do this to, to, to kind of pack his own stats. He had no idea Saul was going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He had no idea that Saul was going to be the most effective missionary to ever walk the face of the earth. He had no idea how many, plant, how many churches he would plant. Barnabas did this out of a pure motive. Because he was a good Christian. He was an encourager to the brethren. And we have no idea how the gospel can, can, can go forward through the souls that God sends to Fellowship Baptist Church. We overlook even one of them. We have no idea what we're overlooking. I'll give you a case in point and we'll go home. In the mid-70s, Bill Prater, my dad, he came to Fellowship Baptist Church and he had a whole lot more hair than he has today. He had like flowing locks. He came from the Panhandle of Oklahoma, from Tyrone, Oklahoma. And he came to this church. And I wouldn't say that he was received instantly by every single member of Fellowship Baptist Church. But I would say there's a couple families that brought him in. His parents are both alcoholics. His parents didn't have a lot of structure for his life. They loved him well, but didn't have a lot of structure for his life. Certainly weren't Christians, weren't believers. He came, to, he came to church on his own accord. Maybe he was inspired by a girl that was in the youth group, but that doesn't count. He came to church. You know the key to growing a youth ministry is to have a lot of girls in the youth group. Because you have a lot of girls in the youth group, boys will come. My dad came as a teenage boy. And he was a mess. But there was a couple families. That, I don't know if they saw something in them or they were just being good Christians. Probably just being good Christians because there's not a whole lot to see in Billy back in the day. And they took him in. They invited him over to his home. Welcomed him into the youth group. My dad got saved. Wasn't too long before his brother Rick. Raise your hand, Rick, so everybody knows he's also the one with not a lot of hair today. He got saved. All their kids have got saved. My Aunt Ginger went to heaven. And God put Candy in Fellowship Baptist Church who repented of her sin and got saved and and married Rick. And Dalton got saved. And Dalton's a full-time youth pastor in in Texas now. My dad is preaching in the Houston, Texas area today. And and my dad is preaching in a different church every weekend around the country. He just wrote a book about the tragedy of us losing my brother. And there there are hundreds of people that are being touched and affected and changed from his ministry, not to mention the, the, the 30 plus years, that almost 40 years that he was on staff right here at Fellowship as the pastor and the youth pastor and all the people that are here today because of his witness. And now, now I'm here today because, because of not just his witness in my life, but because some Barnabases in Fellowship Baptist Church in the mid-70s took a long-haired kid in. We can't miss the souls. We can't overlook the souls. We can't become a church that's, that's like a country club. Not against a country club, but we can't become a church that is like, you got to be a card-carrying member to matter. That's not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There are souls that walk in our doors. In our Christian academies, there are souls. On Sunday mornings, there are souls. On Sunday nights, there are souls. On Wednesday night, there are souls. And there needs to be Barnabases too. There needs to be Ananiases too. So when you come to church, have your head on a swivel. Because you have no idea the next pastor that just walked in our doors. The next missionary walked in our doors. The next deacon. The next Sunday school teacher. 
the next godly father. And America needs more of them today who just walked into our doors. We've got to care for people. Saul was converted by God's grace. Have you been converted by God's grace? Have you been saved? Do you know what that means? If not, take a connect card and and check the back box that says, I want to believe. And we'd love to talk to you about that sometime this week. We'd love that. Put it in the offering plate so we get it. Or just come forward today. Meet me right down here and say, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. And we'll show you how you can give your life to Christ. You won't have to say anything in front of people. But we'll show you how, if you're ready for that, you do that today. But man, I got a lot of baggage. Well, so did Saul, friend. The dude was a persecutor. Don't let the baggage or or your, your life right now or your habits or your addictions or your past, don't let it bind you. Jesus wants to set you free today. Let him. Saul was called by God to preach God's word and so are you. Go do it this week. Be an Ananias in somebody's life. Saul was cared for by God's people. Let's have a Barnabas spirit in Fellowship Baptist Church. And all the church said, amen. Amen. Stand to your feet. Let's respond to God's word today.